You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. Let me stop you right there. This will always be a pro Cam Newton show. Opinionated. Hey, Tatum is phenomenal, but the end of game execution in the NBA is just laughable. To the point. I'm already tired of this storyline. This guy's a future Patriot. This quarterback's a future Patriot. That quarterback's a future Patriot. Are we really going to link everybody to the Pats all offseason? Because I, I have zero interest in that. Thank you. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Day 5 Radio Row at home right here on the Brady Farkas Show. WDEV-AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We are back. The final day of preparation for Super Bowl 55. The final day of Radio Row at home. We've got another stacked guest lineup for you. Remember, you can always get in on the text line 802-585-3026, 802-585-3026. I'm also very, very excited to tell you that now our text line is sponsored by our good friends over at Napa. So uh, the show just keeps on growing, everybody, just keeps on growing, and it's all because of you. So uh, the Napa text line brought to you by your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. So very, very happy to have Napa on board. 585-3026. As for the guest list today, Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus, is at 545-615, a story that I am pumped to learn more about and pumped to tell. Brian Phelps is going to be with us. He's a former Milton High School basketball player. He was part of a game that now 16 years ago in Vermont ended with a final score of 5-2. to two. It caught national attention. BFA Fairfax beats Milton 5-2. to two. Brian Phelps played in that game. He's going to give us the stories behind it and uh, what happened after the game because I, I am pumped to hear all about this one, one of the most unique games in, in really Vermont high school history. It has to be. Jeff Benedict is going to be with us also at 640. He's the author of a book on the Patriots called The Dynasty. So, um before we get into high school sports, which we are going to get to in about three or four minutes, my talk yesterday with Adam Kaufman spurred this memory that I had kind of forgotten about from a, a couple, like six years ago. The Super Bowl trip I didn't get to make. And I had some people talking about this that I, I, people asked me more about it, so I'm going to explain it now. It was the 2014 season. It was the year of 2015. So I was working at ESPN Radio in Albany. This is the Super Bowl where the Patriots beat the Seahawks. I was working at ESPN Radio in Albany, and I had been working there <clears throat> excuse me, for about a year. And I was really low on the totem pole, like really low man on the totem pole. Uh, I worked from 6 to 10 a.m., didn't do a whole lot, never had any interaction with the bosses for the most part. So every week of that season, our afternoon show, which remember I was not a part of, did their show from a bar or restaurant. And they would get a qualifier. People would go, they would watch the show, and at the end of the show, they would pick a qualifier, and that person would basically win that location. So if you were at a TGI Fridays and you won, you won TGI Fridays. And what happened is, is through the 17 weeks of the NFL season, 
you ended up with 17 winners. And then those 17 winners were going to be put into a hat, essentially, to try to win a trip to the Super Bowl that we were going to give them a trip for two. Well, first week of the playoffs, during that wild card round, there was a couple different time slots for games. There was an early game and a late game. So the early game, we were giving away one last chance qualifier. If you had missed out on the previous 17 weeks, you were going to get a chance to qualify. So that was in the early game. And in the late game, we were going to give away the winner. So all those other winners, the previous 17 winners, plus the one we had gotten earlier in the day, they were going to get a chance to win. So the bosses tell me, hey, Brady, you should come out. And I'm like, well, you know, it's not my show. I'm not a big part of the station. like, hey, come on. It'll be fun. It's a party. So I went. And I wasn't really working. I was just kind of hanging out. I helped out a little bit. But I bring my buddy. I bring my college roommate, one of my good friends. And he ends up winning the last chance qualifier. So we get 17 winners from the whole season. And my college roommate who wins the last chance qualifier. So he's the 18th qualifier. So now we got to stick around, right? Like we've got to stick around and we've got to stay for the late game because we're going to see if he can win the trip. And they did the trip. They did they did the winners. Rather than just picking the winner, they picked names. They brought all 18 people up and they picked names. And every person that got picked was out. So my buddy survives like the first 15 and we're down to three people. And I'm like, oh my God, my buddy might win this. My best friend, my college roommate, might win this trip to the Super Bowl to see the Seahawks and Patriots. And at this point now, three, two, and one, we're all going to get something. Three got like a grill. Two was going to get like a inflatable Buffalo Bills uh, recliner and a, recl- uh, a thing of Labatt beer and a cooler. It was all, all good stuff. He survives number three. So now he's in the final two. And he ends up winning the trip. And now we're all going nuts. We, My buddy just showed up this time, this day. It was the only one he went to. He wins the trip to the Super Bowl. We're going nuts. We're high-fiving. The, the bartender gave him a shot of Patron for free, and we're hanging out at the bar now. We're going crazy. Then we go back to my place, and we're watching the Seahawks and the Panthers. Ironically enough, Cam Newton's playing quarterback for the Panthers at that time. And we're watching Seahawks-Panthers. And... He's kind of there, but he's not really there. He's calling people. He's calling his dad. He's talking to people about this. He's texting everyone, posting on social media about how he won the trip to the Super Bowl. The dust kind of settles. The next day, he calls me. and goes, hey, man, I'm taking you. You brought me to the event. You're a Seahawks fan. You're going with. We're going to Phoenix, uh, Glendale, and we're going to the game. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. That's awesome. I got to get off work. I got to tell the fam I'm out for a couple of days. I then, a few minutes later... My buddy has called my boss and said, hey, here's who I'm taking. Let's book the flights. I'm taking Brady. A few minutes later, I'm playing pickup basketball. I get a call from I get a call from my boss who says, Brady, you can't go to the Super Bowl. And I'm like, why? Can I not get off work? They go, no, it's against company policy. I'm like, what are you talking about against company policy? They go, he's your friend. If, if you get to go with him, it's going to look like we rigged the trip. I'm like... Okay, that makes sense, but I'm a nobody. Nobody knows who I am. I work from 6 to 10 a.m. I'm not on the air. Nobody knows who I am. The, the, the listeners at large don't know me. Well, I wasn't allowed to go to the Super Bowl. He goes. He takes his dad. Seahawks lose to the Patriots. He, I get a, a Seahawks terrible towel with Super Bowl, Super Bowl logo-y all over it, but that was it. So I don't get to go to the Super Bowl. And talking to Adam Kaufman yesterday spurred that story out of me. I had a couple of people ask me about it. So there's the story of how I didn't get to go to the Super Bowl. 
uh, the game itself. I got to go to the next four radio rows afterward as I, you know, became a bigger deal at the station and got more opportunities. But uh, damn, it was hard. It was weird to think about. I haven't thought about that in a while. And we talked about it with Adam Kaufman yesterday. Uh, that wouldn't hurt. That wouldn't hurt. You have a chance to go to the Super Bowl you think you're in, and it gets taken from you. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV. My opening thoughts now are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff in Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Swanton, Middlesex, and St. Albans, and online at sticksandstuff.com. Okay, great news today. Text on in, 585-3026. Governor Phil Scott, state officials say high school sports competition can resume. Julie Moore from the governor's team with the latest. Specifically, effective next Friday, February 12th, both interscholastic and youth leagues will be able to resume game play. This includes basketball and hockey, as well as indoor soccer and futsal, broomball and volleyball. First off, this is just great for kids. It's that simple. Don't look at anything else first. Just look at that. This is great for kids. Kids need sports for a lot of reasons. They need sports for social development. They needed to learn lessons like teamwork. They needed to learn lessons in, in perseverance, in time management, and how to balance your time and how to juggle multiple responsibilities. We talk about practice and games and homework and all of that. All of those things are vital lessons taught to us by youth in high school sports. Kids need to learn how to overcome obstacles, to handle success, to handle failure, as well as just learning things like goal setting. Sports teaches lessons in all of those departments. This is great news today for kids. It's also great because it's good for adult mentors. It's good for kids to be around adult mentors that aren't their parents, to learn how to deal with other adults who are in authority positions. If they're older and have dreams of playing in college, that's great. It's really important they don't miss out on a year of their sport. And more importantly, maybe more importantly than any of it, they just need fun. It's so devastating and boring to just be home inside all day, not do anything. Quarantine fatigue is a real thing. Dr. Mark Levine has spoken about it. We've all felt it. And I go to work. I'm one of the lucky ones. I go to work every day. I'm in the office for eight, nine, ten hours a day. I get a break from just being home. Other people don't. The kids just need fun. This is great news to have fun and energy in their lives. And that's the main part of this. Furthermore, I'm extremely happy that the state didn't allow the college situation to impact things. Yes, Norwich, UVM, Castleton, they've all had stops. They've all had pauses. But that never mattered to the high school situation to me. It was always apple and oranges. The college kids live together in dorms. The high school students don't. The college kids can pass it much easier to their teammates because of that communal living. They live together in houses. High school kids don't have that. High school kids don't have the freedom to go out and make decisions that can negatively impact the team or put you at a greater risk. They don't drive with the regularity that, that college students do. They can't go to bars or clubs or restaurants. They can't have gatherings like that. They can't, the high school student-athlete could never impact themselves in the way the college student-athlete could. They aren't traveling across state lines in nearly all cases to play games. And 
the, the high school students have to wear masks when they play, which the college students don't. So it was never fair to hold the college situation over the high school and youth sports situation, you know, to hold it over its head. It was always apples and oranges. The thing, though, that is really interesting about this is from the youth perspective, the youth sports perspective. What I mean by that is this. There's going to be no fans at these games. Okay, and for a high school student, that's easy. You take the bus, you go to a game. You can maybe carpool with with teammates or whatever to get to practice, to get to a gym or a rink. So you can, you can handle it at the high school level. At the youth level, when mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle are driving you to games, well, now they're, they're not in the building with you. You're going to practice, you're going to games, and they have to leave. If you are somebody in Burlington who plays youth basketball and you've got to drive down to, uh, you know, whatever, Northfield to play, that's an hour away, and now your parent can't be in the gym with you, what are you supposed to do? You can't easily go shopping. You can't easily go sit at a, co- at a coffee shop because there's COVID restrictions. The, the youth sports aspect and the impact of this on parents and guardians at the youth sports level, that's a real big concern to me. Again, it's all about the kids and that they're playing. That is the most important thing by far. But if you are a parent who's tasked with getting your child or getting somebody to a game or practice, and now you have to leave and occupy your time for an hour, two hours, three hours, that's hard to do. I feel for parents who are in that situation right now because it's not as easy to kill time now when there's all these COVID limitations. But again, the kids are what matter here. Good on the governor, good on his staff for recognizing that and for coming to a conclusion on how to do this safely. And thank you for not letting the college situation impact the high school situation. We will have high school basketball for you when we have a full schedule. Gameplay can begin again next Friday, so maybe we even have a game next Friday. Schedule, we should know a little more next week. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You know what? Let's not even take a break. Let's just go right now. Let's uh, let's get Eric Eager on here, our pro football focus insider, get us ready for the Super Bowl. Well, let's just, guys, let's play the Eric Eager intro. Okay, Eric Eager, pro football focus. He's been with us every single week on this show, so I look forward to welcoming him on. Just, just give us the Eric Eager music. Football is a complicated game. It's full of plays. John! What? Red 7! I don't know what Red 7 means. Hot route! I don't. What is hot route? And numbers and statistics. So how do we even understand the game? <laughs> it's our weekly conversation with Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus, on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back, Brady Farkas Show, right here, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. We are just days away, Super Bowl 55, Tom Brady in it again, going up against Patrick Mahomes, and hard to believe we've gotten this far after how tumultuous the early part of the season was, the midseason, and then even into the playoffs when you look at what happened with the Browns. But we are here, and as he has been every single Friday during the season, Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus, is with us now. Eric, I mean, hey, it's crazy that we're here, but I'm thrilled that we are. Yeah, it's been a weird year, right, where we didn't know, you know, with the COVID situation and all that, whether we'd be playing this game on time. But uh, we feel I feel it's weird. This entire week I've I've, I've wrestled with disappointment over not being in Tampa to cover the game, but also being obviously relieved and and fortunate that uh, that we're playing this game. So I'm excited. I think that I think we'll see a decent one. uh, (laughs) It's a good one on Sunday. 
you know, we'll get to the game, but let's talk about the Patriots real quick. Um, last week we were talking about the idea of the Pats trading for Matthew Stafford. They don't get him. I understand part of the cost for the Rams was getting rid of Goff's contract. I understand that that inflated the price, but at what Stafford actually went for, I am thrilled the Patriots weren't even in the ballpark of those conversations. Did you think that was way too high for New England? For New England, absolutely. I mean, because the thing is, as we talked about this last time, uh, if Stafford goes to New England, he he basically has the same excuse computer that he had in Detroit, which is, you know, I'm not going to have any help, but, you know, uh, yeah, the, you, you don't have any weapons. And I think also that was a little bit overblown. I mean, when you look at Detroit, Detroit drafted two tight ends in the top 10 while yeah. he was the quarterback there. Brandon Pettigrew was a hold like He was a first round pick as well. Um, you know, Golden Tate, Calvin Johnson, Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay, Danny Amendola seems like a, a, a decent offensive line, seemed like fairly good circumstances for Stafford. Obviously, with coaching, that would be where New England would have the edge over his previous regimes. But there are other better options for New England. Uh, you know, honestly, I think Stafford probably props the Rams up a little bit, but a lot less than people believe. The report came out that Stafford didn't want to play in New England. He singled the Patriots out as the one place that he doesn't want to go to. And people will say, well, yeah, they're a rebuilding team. Why would he want to go there? My, my, can, my beef with that is if Stafford was here and they have still an additional $40 million in cap space, I don't think they're as big a dumpster fire as he apparently thinks they would be. Yeah. You know, I obviously I think the Patricia angle is a big deal. Um, the other one is that, you know, and, and quite frankly, you know, players who are good but not great, have struggled in New England, you know, if they're not, if they, you know, good, but not great with, with expensive pedigree have had difficult times in New England. Um, you know, uh, you know, you saw it with Albert Hainsworth, you saw it with Reggie Wayne, Joey Galloway, Ocho Cinco, when he played for New England, it's a tough environment because unlike, you know, in many places, and we're seeing it, you know, let's say in Houston, we're going to see it wherever Deshaun Watson goes, players have a ton of power, and, and that's a good thing. But Bill Belichick, maybe, and maybe Andy Reid, uh, you know, he's a coach that does require an amount of respect that supersedes almost every other situation that a player is going to go into. And, and that might be a difficult situation uh, for, a, you know, a, a quarterback of Matthew Stafford's uh, esteem. So I, I think it's a little bit, um, I think it's a little bit, you know, the Patricia thing, but I also just think it's an intimidating, you know, uh, a place for a player who might not be as good as people think he is. I'm really worried about the Pats' ability this offseason to get weapons in. They have $60 million in cap space. So, yeah, theoretically, they can go out and bring in any, all the weapons that they want. But if they don't have a quarterback by the time free agency starts, I don't know what wide receiver or tight end is signing up to come there. Like, yeah, they can draft a quarterback, but aren't they going to need somebody established like the second free agency opens to even have a chance at getting top weapons? You'd be surprised, though. I mean, Allen Robinson picked Chicago over Green Bay a couple of years ago, you know, and then the money in Chicago wasn't necessarily all that much better. You know, the, the Patriots do have the cap space and money speaks very loudly uh, for for a lot of players, especially players who performed well on something less than a first round draft pick, um, because, again, that second contract is really the payday. Um, so, 
you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that. I do think, though, that they have to – I mean, look, you, you if you go into next season with Jacoby Myers and, and Demir Bird as anything more than your two and three – uh, you're you're going to be in a tough spot if you're New England, and especially if you're bringing up uh, a rookie quarterback. So they do need to probably be in the sweepstakes for a player like Garoppolo, uh, a player like Cousins, a player like Carr, um, even Jameis Winston to some degree. I, I do think that that has to be part of the calculus. Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus, with us here. You can check him out, pff.com. He's on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEV Radio. Dot com. All right, moving to the Super Bowl. Um, what's the biggest matchup in this game? Is it Tampa's D-line against a maligned offensive line for KC? Is it KC's DBs against Tampa's good receivers? Where's the best matchup at this game? I think the best matchup is Levante David versus Travis Kelsey. Uh, <laughs> um, David is a very good linebacker. I think he's the good linebacker of the two. Devin White, I think, is more known for his big plays, but I think on a play-for-play basis, not as consistent. David, though, um, his PFF grade when covering tight ends is 42.0. His his PFF grade when covering running backs is 91.7. There's reports that he's going to be the one covering Kelsey. I think that that makes Tampa Bay worse in two spots, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately, which, you know, Kelsey has been a player who's sort of a cheat code in the NFL. Um, so if, if Kelsey can go, you know, 10 for a buck 50 and two touchdowns, like that to me, that just makes it extremely hard for Tampa Bay uh, to win this football game. How good is Brady on his own? You know, I guess just PFF has the ability to isolate players individually and regardless of their situations. Brady is certainly propped up or helped rather by good weapons and a defense that has been opportunistic. How good is Brady on his own? Uh, it's a great question. I think it's it's closer to what we've seen in Tampa than what we saw last year in New England. Uh, you're, you're dealing with about a yard more per pass attempt this year uh, in the regular season, uh, Tampa Bay versus New England. New England's weapons were just sort of a, on another planet as far as being poor last season. And Tampa's weapons, I think, you know, maybe not the best in the league, but one of the best in the league uh, and, and the aggressiveness uh, to boot as well. So I, I think Brady is still like fundamentally a top five quarterback in the NFL. Uh, so, um, you know, how would a top five quarterback play in New England? You know, it might be underwhelming, but a top five quarterback playing in one of these sort of super offenses can obviously give you the results that you've seen this season with Brady and obviously Mahomes as well. Uh, you know, it, there's make no mistake, the teams, the two teams that are in the Super Bowl right now are maybe the two teams with the best weapons in the entire league. For Mahomes, the weather looks like it might be a bit of an issue, kind of windy there in Tampa. That would lead me to believe it's harder to pass, but the Bucks have a top-ranked rushing defense in the NFL. So what do you think Kansas City's game plan offensively is and should be? Yeah, that's a great uh, point. Uh, it looks like precipitation went from about 75% likely to 50%, so that's a little bit helpful. 10-mile-per-hour mile wind, which is you know existent but not necessarily in that outlier range where it affects passing. I sort of look at it a little bit differently. I I think that obviously the mismatch where the Bucks have the biggest advantage this week is their defensive line uh, against Kansas City's banged up front five. But if 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 uh, field conditions are a little bit weaker, that hurts pass rush actually, uh, and so that might even be weirdly another advantage mm-hmm. that the Chiefs have. Uh, you know, because right now, you know, you look at Shaq Barrett, he's led the NFL in pressures the last two years. Uh, Jason Pierre-Paul is a great player. Ndamukong Sue is a top 10 player in his position in terms of wins above replacement. And Vita Vea is a, is a very good nose tackle. So they're very good up front. 
that's where one place where the Chiefs are at a disadvantage. If weather comes in and neutralizes the trench matchup, <laughs> the Bucks might have an even harder chance than we think. Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus, with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. The speed of Kansas City is certainly um, among their many great assets. How big a factor is their speed? Can Tampa counter that? I, you know, they have athletes on defense for sure. And, you know, Carlton Davis, you know, they, they they trust their coverage players. You know, there's only nine players in the NFL during the regular season that allowed 750 or more passing yards into their coverage. The Bucks have three of them. The Chiefs have no one over 600. But the Chiefs are weaker pedigree in the secondary, uh, so they funnel everything to different guys. Um, Tampa trusts the athleticism of their players. And I think for most games, it, it, they come out on top. As we saw in Week 12, as we might see on Sunday, that might not be good enough against the Tampa Bay team that comes at you. I mean, we're not only talking about Hill and Kelsey. We're talking about, if healthy, Sammy Watkins, who is a top-five draft pick uh, by the Buffalo Bills. Uh, you know, Nicole Hardman was a second-round pick. Nicole Hardman was picked ahead of DK Metcalf uh, two drafts ago and, and, and scored seven or eight touchdowns as a rookie and, and a few more this season. So Clyde Edwards-Lair, again, uh, first-round running back. I mean, they're just, they're just coming at you with so many different options that, you know, if you're Tampa, anything short of earning a couple turnovers, I, I think is going it, to, it's just, there. it's either going to be Brady, you have to score every single possession, or uh, maybe get some noisy plays like turnovers and sack fumbles and things like that on the, on the defensive side of the ball. So it sounds like you're picking the Chiefs. I think the Chiefs are the side here. Um, it makes me a little nervous because, you know, the betting markets are generally pretty efficient. However, the... The public has its say in the Super Bowl. Um, a lot of money on the Chiefs, though. And I think part of the reason for that is that a lot of people, when Brady became a member of the Bucks, bought into Tampa Bay. I really, I mean, I have a, a nine to one Tampa Bay ticket, right? So mm -hmm. if Tampa wins, like I, you know, I, I get a decent payout. So I think a lot of people are in that same position. And so a lot of people are probably betting the Chiefs as a hedge uh, because we're seeing like really huge, like, you know, four to one. Uh, ticket ticket splits, uh, Kansas City. And we haven't seen the number move all that much, which means that there are some sharp people, people who the betting markets respect, betting on Tampa Bay. So that makes me a little bit nervous. Um, but ultimately, I do like Kansas City here. I think the mismatch in coaching uh, is far too big. And I think the Chiefs defense is not being talked about enough as a force in this particular matchup. You know, I did not make one bet on any NFL game this year. I was too scared that COVID was going to impact things so much. I just was like, I'm taking the whole season off. I'm very proud of myself. I did, however, get on, on a prop bet pool for the Super Bowl. Now, you're a Chiefs fan. The Chiefs are wearing the red jerseys, I believe. What color headband is Mahomes going to wear with that jersey? Because I chose red, but I'm trying to think fashion sense. I don't know if I would have gone with white. White or yellow, maybe? I think yellow is a long shot that might might hit. Um by the way, if you're looking for a prop bet um, that 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 I think has some value, Tampa Bay being the first team to score and that score being a field goal is four and a half to one. Okay, interesting. Uh, the the Bucks the last two times they've had the coin toss go their way, they've chosen to receive. The Chiefs have always deferred, so there's a really good chance that Tampa Bay is going to get the football first, hmm. and there and the Chiefs defense is very bend but don't break. The Bucks are not a go-for-it team on fourth down. There's a very good chance that that first drive will end up in a field goal attempt. Um, and and so that, that's that been kind of shaping my, 
my prop betting this weekend is the idea that Tampa is going to be the first team with the ball. I had to write in a player I thought would score the first touchdown. I said Travis Kelsey. What did you think of that pick? I don't mind it at all. Uh, I think I think that's a very good one. Um, you know, so there is obviously some long, sh- you know, so if you think Tampa is going to score a field goal right away or get the ball first, some of the Bucks players have more value than others. Maybe somebody like Cameron Brait, the Chiefs, third most yards given up to tight ends this year, second fewest yards given up to wide receivers. I know Brait's dealing with an injury, um, but the tight end position for Tampa is a place I've looked this week for overs, um, you know, and places like Mike Evans I've looked at for unders. But that, you know, again, uh, that's just very specific to this matchup. So you might see, you know, if, if you don't get a first, uh, you know, field goal by Tampa, you might get like a first touchdown by somebody like Brait or Gronk. Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus. You can check him out, pff.com. Uh, Eric, we appreciate you coming on every single Friday since this show has been on the air in late October. Great insight on the Patriots and around the whole league. We'll chop it up in the offseason for sure. And if anybody's interested in Pro Football Focus's offseason content leading up to the draft, reports on college football players, uh, and then just looking towards transactions for the agency for next season, pff.com. Uh, cannot recommend it enough as a resource. Eric, man, we appreciate it. Enjoy the game. Thanks for having me on, man. All season, it's been a lot of fun, and and uh, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting offseason for the Patriots and for the Holy. Yeah, it will. Yeah, it will. Eric Eager, Pro Football Focus, with us. Seriously, uh, cannot thank him enough for coming on every single week. So uh, hard to believe it's our last talk with Eric for the for the year. You know, you know, we're we'll still have football to talk about, but it won't be games to preview. You can check Eric and his workout at PFF. If you want to get in on the Napa text line, you can. 802-585-3026. The Napa text line is open to you. What we'll do, we'll step aside. We'll come back after the CBS News National Update, and I'll give you my thoughts on Super Bowl 55. Eric has given me some things to think about here in the commercial break, but uh, I'll give you my thoughts on Super Bowl 55, and then we'll get you ready for more Radio Row at Home. You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Middlesex, St. Albans, Swanton, Enosburg, and Derby, and online always at sticksandstuff.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, everybody. Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Reminder, if you ever miss any of our show or any of our exclusive interviews, you can go over to the uh, to the uh, full show podcast or just the interviews on the podcast as well. It's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com, and it's all thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swant and Lumber. We're about 10 minutes away from former Milton High School basketball player Brian Phelps, who will tell us the story behind the infamous – now 16-year-old high school hoop game in which Milton lost to BFA Fairfax 5-2. to The game made national news, national headlines. Brian Phelps played in it. He's going to talk about it with us in about 10 minutes. Jeff Benedict, author of the book The Dynasty uh, on the Patriots, will be here about 640. The Napa text line is open, 585-3026 as well. Napa locally owned in Waterbury and uh, here in central Vermont. So... Uh, very, very excited to have Napa aboard, by the way. 
Radio Row at home, day number five. Eric Eager said some really interesting things about how the game is going to play out in his mind. And the weather is an issue. The footing for the defensive line of the Bucks is an issue if it ends up being wet there. The speed of Kansas City could be neutralized. There's a lot of issues here. But for me, I'm just I'm going with the Chiefs 37-24. That is my prediction. 37-24 Chiefs. I just think they're better. It's that simple. I just think they're better. It's that simple. I'm not 100% con you know, I don't have 100% conviction on that score prediction, but that's what I'm going with. When I see Kansas City, I think they need less to go right. And that's really what it comes down to for me. I think the Chiefs can overcome more. They can overcome the bad weather. They can overcome the bad penalty or the bad call or the bad turnover. I feel like Tampa has to be nearly flawless to win this game. I feel like the Bucs have to be nearly flawless. I look out at, at Kansas City and I see speed in Tyreek Hill and Mecole Hardman. I see the ability of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in space. And I, I've just seen Mahomes be too special too many times. It doesn't mean Brady can't win. It doesn't mean that Brady's not good. But the Kansas City offense is so unique, is so special. Travis Kelsey is you know, one of the greatest tight ends we've ever seen. I mean, big like a tight end catches like a wide receiver, has ability like a wide receiver. We haven't seen too much of that. There's more special with Kansas City. The Bucks are good. They can win this game. But I think the, the I think the Chiefs can overcome more and I just don't see the Bucks playing the perfect game that they're going to need to. I really think that Tampa Bay, I think look, they're smart. They know the Chiefs are more skilled than them. They know the Chiefs beat them earlier in the year. I really think that Tampa is going to come out and play risky, and it's going to cost them. Bruce Arians' saying is, no risk it, no biscuit. And that has worked for them a lot this year. I don't think it's going to work for them on Sunday. They can't overcome that kind of mistake. If they go for it on fourth and three at their own 48 and don't get it, they won't be able to overcome it. If they go for it on fourth and one and get stopped when they should have taken a field goal, those kind of mistakes will pile up and the Bucks won't be able to overcome. I think on that note, though, it's really interesting to hear what Tom Brady said about Bruce Arians earlier this week. Listen to this. I really love his approach. He's coaches to win, and I, I don't think there's any fear he has about uh, things not going the right way. I think he has an approach and style, and he wants us to go out there and perform at our best. And So listen to it one more time. I really love his approach. He's coaches to win, and I, I don't think there's any fear he has about uh, things not going the right way. I think he has an approach and style, and he wants us to go out there and perform at our best. Okay. He coaches to win. He has a style. He wants us to go out there and perform at our best. So basically, Brady is praising the aggressiveness of Bruce Arians. And a lot has been made of the Brady-Arians relationship and how Brady likes Arians and how it's kind of a nice change of pace from Bill Belichick. Think about this scenario. Okay, Think about this. Forever, Tom Brady has had a strict dad, right? A strict father in, in Bill Belichick. And everything is done a certain way, but it wears on you, okay? Everything is done, it's all about efficiency, it's all about getting things done, being neat, organized, 
timely manner. We have our priorities. We do them. We go to bed. We do it again the next day. That's dad Bill Belichick. But again, at the end of the day, it wears on you. But Brady has inherited some of those traits too. He might not want to be his dad, but he's turning into his dad. Think about a kid. He's got a strict father, and you know he's strict, but at the end of the day, that discipline wears off on you. That's that's the situation Tom Brady's been in. And I do believe that for this year, Tom Brady likes Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians is the fun uncle. Okay, You go visit him for the weekend. You get to act a little different. You get to eat cold pizza for breakfast and ice cream for dessert. You stay up a little bit later than Dad lets you do. You stay out when it's just a little bit darker. He lets you. He just lets you do things Dad doesn't do, and it's cool. It's a cool change of pace for a weekend, and that's what Brady has this year. The zaniness of Bruce Arians has been a fun change of pace, and by the way, the zaniness has worked for this year. The risk it, no, no risk it, no biscuit has worked. That philosophy has made Brady happy this year. That's the fun weekend, but you know what? The wacky uncle. If you're around him too long, the warts they start to show. Okay, the cold pizza gets a little tired. You like a nice home cooked meal. You can't live on ice cream. The homework starts to slip up. The grades are a little bit worse. You show up late for school. Eh, the wacky uncle just isn't for you. You go back to dad though, and everything gets straightened out. My point is, Tom Brady loves his stay this year. With fun Bruce Arians. He is the fun uncle. And it's worked out. It's been great. It's been a great weekend at Uncle Bruce's house. But the longer Brady is around Arians, the more he's going to get tired of it. The lack of discipline. The lack of attention to detail. The risky mentality. Brady's going to have to be the grown-up. But he doesn't want to be the grown-up. He wants to just go out there and play. Bruce Arians is the fun uncle. He's great for a weekend. He's not great all time. Tom Brady truly may love Bruce Arians this year, but if he had spent his whole career around Bruce Arians, he would have grown tired of him because Tom Brady, at the end of the day, is much more of Bill Belichick than he is of Bruce Arians. That's who Tom Brady is. Tom Brady has brought in a lot of Patriots' tendencies to Tampa. The Bucs were the most penalized team in the league last year. They had the most turnovers in the league last year. Tom Brady has, has changed all of that. Because he's disciplined, because of his work ethic. And that coupled with Bruce's zany style, you know what? It's worked for this year. But if Tom Brady was around this for 20 years, it wouldn't work. I promise you. Tom Brady didn't have to overcome Bill Belichick a whole lot in New England. Tom Brady would have to overcome Bruce Arians. And that's not a situation that Brady would enjoy for the long haul. For this weekend, it's all fun at Uncle Bruce's house. For this season, all fun at Uncle Bruce's house. For the for the entirety of his career, though, nah, Tom's not about that. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The Napa text line, Dane in Rochester, says, Brady, you say we haven't seen anything like Travis Kelsey. Well, what about Gronk? You're right. We haven't seen anything. We hadn't seen anything like Gronk. But what made Gronk so good, I think a lot of it is his fearlessness. Right, Gronk was so much bigger than everybody. He ran a little bit better than a traditional tight end, but he wasn't so big and cumbersome that he was slow, and he had a fearlessness about him, and he was just a huge target. We have seen big tight ends, though. Gronk was just able to do it in a way that we had never seen before, willing to go across the middle, willing to make difficult catches, um, big catch radius, great hands. But Gronk out physical you. Travis Kelsey's different in that he's much more 
I don't want to say skill predicated, but he's got things like footwork. Those are not things we always attributed to Gronk. Travis Kelsey has footwork. He runs faster than Gronk. He's not quite as big as Gronk either. You know, he's faster than usual tight ends. He can run close to like a wide receiver, still physical like a tight end, has great feet, great route running ability, and great hands. We just don't see that skill set a lot. I'm not saying that Travis Kelsey's the best tight end of all time, but he's in the conversation because he's helped to, along with Gronk, revolutionize the position. He's really one of these hybrid players, Okay, this kind of hybrid wide receiver tight end type. Gronk was a true tight end. Dayton Rochester says he's nimble. Yes, he is nimble. That's the Napa text line. It's open 802-585-3026. Again, 802-585-3026. We got Brian Phelps on the line? Okay. So Brian Phelps played high school basketball for Milton High School. Back in 2005, now 16 years ago, there was a game where Milton lost 5-2. It made national news. It was on ESPN. It was on ESPN.com. I read the story yesterday. I've always wondered about this game. Brian Phelps is going to stop by with us next right here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Change a child's life in just one hour a week. Read to a child over lunch at school through Everybody Wins Vermont, a statewide literacy mentoring program. Please go to everybodywinsvermont.org to find a site near you and fill out an application. There is a waiting list of children who would love to have you read with them. When you read with a child, everybody wins. Your chance to be part of the show is on the text line at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back to Brady Farkas Show right here at WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Super Bowl week, Radio Row at home. We've been doing our best to bring you the biggest names, the best guests, but also some stories with local appeal. And this next one is a story I've been wanting to tell for a while. So 16 years ago, um, one of the most iconic games in Vermont high school basketball history, but maybe even just U.S. basketball history happened. It was right here in Vermont. It was BFA Fairfax against Milton. The final score was BFA Fairfax 5 and Milton 2, and uh, the game got national attention on ESPN. We're talking now with my guy Brian Phelps, who I've played some hoops with. He was in that game playing for Milton, the team with just two points at the end of a high school basketball game. Brian, how are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, like I said, hanging in there, uh, doing the best I can under uh, under the circumstances. So uh, I appreciate you having me on and taking some time and to talk about this wonderful basketball <laughs> game that happened now 16 years ago. It's crazy to kind of when you, think about it. When you think about it 16 years ago, what stands out to you from that game, just overall? Man, uh, you know, the fans, obviously, that's one thing that can't comes to mind first is, you know, just the, the noise that you're hearing because – you know, in a five to two game, there's not a whole lot going on, not a lot of dribbling. So you don't really hear much on the court. You hear everything going on behind you. Um, and you just hear a lot of the fans just kind of not heckling, but kind of asking, you know, what's going on? What, what are you guys doing? Play, play, play. That's all you heard was just yelling. Now, the ESPN story that came out that night said that this was a deliberate strategy by you guys to try to keep the score down. Is that true first? Yeah, so 
We, uh, it, it definitely was a part of our conversation. I don't think a lot of the players really understood that it was actually going to turn into what it turned into. Um, we averaged something like 25 turnovers a game. Um, we didn't score very well. And uh, they played a zone. So our conversation was, you know, we're going to try to make them come out of their zone and either play man to man or extend their zone. And we thought we might have a better opportunity. And if not, we would kind of hold the ball. And um, it just became a, a stalemate at one point. And is it truly you got the point guard just held the ball for the entirety of the half? Or was, you, was there still passing and looking for shots that just didn't come? So there wasn't there. He held the ball for quite some time. He passed the ball to me. I was on the uh, the wing at one point, uh, foul line extended, and he passed me the ball, and as soon as I got it, I just passed it right back to him. I, I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want to stand there and hold it because I knew that, you know, with everything going on behind me, that, you know, it just wasn't turning into a good situation, and I, I just wanted the ball out of my hands, and I just – I was ready to just stand there. And, you know, I was having conversations with kids on the Fairfax team just kind of talking with them during during the game you know your team wasn't particularly good that year I think your record was two and seven going into yeah. that game so yeah. I've been on teams and coach teams that were heavily undermanned and yes. so did, when you're going through the week and you're talking about this strategy are you thinking like hey this is cool and different we might pull a massive upset are you embarrassed that you're going to play this way well, like I said, I don't think when we were having the conversation, we talked about, you know, making them come out and extend their zone um, and maybe play us man-to-man because they played a 3-2 zone and we struggled against the zone. So we figured if we, we had a man um, defense against us, we could, you know, fare well a little bit better against them. Um, that didn't happen. So, you know, when it started to fruition into the game and everything started going on and we kind of realized what was going on, I was like, wow, we're actually really just standing there holding the ball. You know, I, I didn't think that was – I thought they would come out and play, and I thought the game would kind of get moving and get going. But um, it kind of just turned into that, and, you know, the the rest is kind of history from there. When you look back on it, is it embarrassing to have played that way? Yeah, you know, you know, the day after the game, you know, we went in and uh, to the next practice, studied the film, you know, to see what went wrong. Uh, no we didn't we didn't study no film we uh we had a very very long two-hour conversation um kind of about what happened and and our coach pulled us in and asked us how we felt about it um obviously most of us were embarrassed you know we we talked about how we signed up for basketball we didn't sign up for this you know going into the strategy you know you're kind of told to you know go with the game plan you know you do what your coaches say you do what your teachers say you do what your parents say so I think at that age, we were just kind of, you know, we're going to go in, we're going to do what coach wants us to do. Um, hey, you know, we got blown out by 20, 20 points a game mostly. That was our our, uh, our little bit of a defeat, you know, three points. Um, yeah. You know, we, we fared a little better in that <laughs> game, but. Brian Phelps with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, former Milton High School basketball player, part of that iconic game that was BFA Fairfax 5, Milton 2, now 16 years ago, back in 2005. You mentioned parents. What do parents say after that game? You go home. What are parents saying after that game? Uh, my dad ended up actually walking out. My parents don't say too much. Um, you know, in the stands, they were fairly quiet. Uh, my dad got a little angry, obviously, and frustrated with the game. And he ended up just getting up and walking out. Um, when I got home, you know, asked me what was going on, you know, why we did what we did. And, you know, I explained to him, you know, the conversations that we had as a team and what we thought and, you know, obviously you have so many emotions, you know, I was angry. So, I, you know, I might've said a few things that, you know, I didn't agree with, 
um, you know, back then, like I said, you're kind of just going along with a coach, but then once you sit back and you kind of think about it, you're like, yeah, you know, that's pretty embarrassing what we did just, just now, you know, we had, you know, the fans, you know, a lot of fans from Fairfax, you know, five minutes down the road, you know, the fans, uh, they came out and we had a, you know, a good amount of people to come watch a basketball game and we kind of disappointed a lot of people and, you know, ourselves as well. So as a player, obviously, okay, BFA Fairfax was better than you. Would you rather have played it straight up and they beat you 65 to 15? Is that less oh, embarrassing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, looking back on it, absolutely. You know, you, you'd rather give as much effort as you can into the game and, you know, the outcome's the outcome. Um, obviously, there wasn't a whole lot of effort put into this game. Um, you know, I had friends on the Fairfax team that I played AAU with. So we had that, you know, that friendly competition there always when I played them. So that was one of my favorite games to play was against Fairfax because I knew kids on the team. And, um, you know, like I said, most of the game, I was just sitting there talking to talking to one of the players on Fairfax during the game. What's crazy, though, is you went on to play college basketball. Derek O'Grady, who I don't think was on this team, but no. he, he uh, was a thousand point scorer at Milton. He could play ball. Yep. It's not like the program was terrible. I mean, I wouldn't think you guys could have played. You know, um, my freshman and sophomore year, we were, we were very young. Um, we had a couple freshmen on my team my freshman year. We only had one senior, two seniors. I think my sophomore year, we only had two seniors. So um, we, were, we were really young. We didn't have a go-to scorer. I think probably, uh, you know, our biggest scorer maybe averaged 11 points a game. Um, you know, my junior and senior year, I kind of transitioned into that. You know, uh, when we got a new coach, my my junior year, he really opened up the offense and really helped develop my game. And I kind of, you know, developed into that kind of player. Um, but, you know, my freshman and sophomore year, I just I wasn't there. Um, so it, it was a struggle for us every game. The game was possible because Vermont still does not have a shot clock. Your thoughts on not having a shot clock? You know, and it, that was the first thing I said after the game was Vermont needs a shot clock. Um, not only for situations like that, I don't think that'll ever happen again. You know, I think that's a that's a one-time thing you, you'll probably see. Um, but just for the development of the players, you know, speeds up the game. It makes you think quicker. It makes you react quicker. Um, you don't have that standing around and people just – dribbling, 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 you know, you really got to cut and, and do different movements. So I think just for the development of the players, I think a shot clock would be great for the state of Vermont. The Vermont is not the only state without a shot clock. Obviously you've had this talk with people before around the state long before I ever got to the state. What's the reason behind not having a shot clock as far as you understand? Um, honestly, I'm not really sure what the reasoning is behind it. Um, I've never talked to, you know, besides just having conversations with coaches and whatnot um, about after the fact, you know, this is a reason why there should be a shot clock. You know, I've never really discussed too much about why the state doesn't have one. Like you said, I know other states don't have them as well. Um, but, you know, I always I always thought it was money related. The amount of money to go in and put a shot clock on two hoops in every gym in the yeah. state. That's what I thought the reason was. Yeah, I mean, it could be. Um you know, I don't know how the state does for funding with, you know, high school athletics. Um, you know, that, that that very well could be what it is. I'll get you out of here on this. Now, 16 years. How big a deal was this when it happened? I saw the story on ESPN, but how big a deal was it when it happened? So when I didn't know it was a big deal until the next morning when I woke up, you know, obviously little Milton, Vermont, you know, Fairfax, Vermont, you don't, you're not going to hear nothing about us. You know, I woke up the next morning, turned on Sports Center, 
and it was literally i don't know if, who it was i think it was steve levy hmm. it was the last segment right before their last hour and he goes you want to know where the most bored people in the whole country were this weekend <laughs> they're like at a high school basketball game in milton vermont and my jaw just dropped i was like oh wow and i i ran upstairs talked to my mom i was like mom i was like it's all sports center i'm like this is ridiculous i get to school and whether it was true or not but there was rumors that espn was calling our school trying to get interviews with coaches and players and whatnot and you know that's when it really really blew up and that's when i really knew like wow this is actually going somewhere and then you know i get to johnson state and i play with kids from out of state and you know we talk about it you were on that team and i'm like yeah it's pretty crazy that people (laughs) actually heard about it so you mentioned that you were embarrassed looking back on it now. When you guys get famous because of this, does the embarrassment shift to like, damn, this is pretty cool, or does it make it worse? Hey, man, you know, it's probably the only way I'm ever going to have my name in an article on ESPN, so <laughs> I'll take it. I'll, I will take it 100%. <laughs> um, it's not the, you know, it's not what I want, but uh, I'll take it. Absolutely. Brian Phelps, former Milton High School basketball player, 16 years ago, January, one of the most iconic games in Vermont history, in, in high school basketball history. 5-2 to two was the final. Milton on the losing end. Brian, we appreciate you sharing some uh, some memories of, uh, of that uh, memorable night, man. Thanks. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Take care. Be safe. All right, you too. Wow. Wow. What a story that is. I have been trying to learn more about that game for a while and I didn't even realize that I knew multiple people who played in that game until recently so I was able to uh, get Brian to come on and share honestly his assessment of it Um, the Napa text line is open 802-585-3026 what do you think about that the idea of a high school basketball game finishing with a final score of five to two and the idea of a high school basketball program actively promoting to essentially hold the ball and not play. I mean, it's I see why it happened nationally, why it took off as a national conversation, because there's so many layers to it. As I was talking to Brian, I was trying to figure out how would I have felt about being on the Milton team that was undergoing this strategy? How would I have felt by about it? I think in the moment as you're coming up with this strategy, I actually would have liked it. And the reason why is because I was always a thinking player. So the idea of coming up with a strategy and outthinking the other team, I actually think would have really appealed to me. As the coach is going over the game plan, I would have been okay with it because it was the idea of outthinking the opponent. But as the game goes on, I think, like Brian felt, I would have realized just how bad it was. You want to play, and it's embarrassing to not. And you think about the other fans giving you the business and the embarrassment that you feel at being too scared to lose. Look, I've been blown out before. I've been beaten in baseball games 27 to 3 and, you know, 16 to 1 and all these things. It's horrible. But to essentially not play, I think, would have been worse. And then. I truly think the worst part of it would have been you have to go home and face your parents. And I can just picture my parents who have taken you to practice and sacrificed to get you to games and maybe taken off work early to come to that game in particular. They've bought you shoes. They've paid for AAU. They've done all of these things for you. 
the hardest part would have been coming in and looking them in the eye and saying, basically, we tanked it. That, to me, would have been, I think, the hardest part of all of it. Yeah, it's embarrassing to end the game with two points. Yeah, it's embarrassing for me personally to not score or whatever. But to go home and look my parents in the eye, who have sacrificed a lot of time, energy, and money for me, and to basically look at them and say that we tanked it, that that would have been the hardest part of all. And then after that, ESPN is all over you. You probably do think it's cool and unique, but it's not the right reason. But as a high school kid, you'd probably think it's cool. And then now, I think like Brian, you look back at it 16 years ago, you're mortified. I'd be more. I'd be embarrassed that that story lives on forever, and I was a part of it. And if I was the coach of that team, I'd be embarrassed also. I, and tangentially to that, there does need to be a shot clock in Vermont. I mean, my goodness, let's go here. I understand the money and electronics and wiring and all that. Like, I, I get it, but there's got to be a shot clock in Vermont. The Napa text line is open. We get one in from. Uh, Marcus up in Milton, actually, ironically enough, who says, wow, I didn't even know that story, and I've lived here for more than 20 years. What a story. I can't believe that Milton played that way. We get one in from uh, Rick, who's down in Montpelier, and says, yeah, that I remember that night. I remember that story making news nationally and thinking to myself, oh, my God, Vermont really does need a shot clock. How is that even possible? And then I get one in from uh, – David, who is in Waterbury, and says, Brady, great interview. Uh, appreciate Brian's honesty. Uh, I don't know how I'd feel if I were in his shoes. I, I think I'd feel a lot like he did. I mean, when you're coming up with a strategy to beat a team that's much better than you, you know, yeah, I think I'd probably think, okay, wait, we're thinking here. Good strategy. But then when you see the game unfolding, like he says, they're not coming out of their zone. They're not doing anything you realize it just how boring and embarrassing it is. So uh, what an interview, what a story that night was. So pretty darn cool. All right, let's let's uh, let's step aside. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jeff Benedict is going to join us. He wrote the book, The Dynasty, about the Patriots. You've seen books on Belichick and Brady. This one is different. I've got it on my desk as we speak. I can't wait to pick it up. I can't wait to learn more. Author Jeff Benedict with us next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back to the Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Radio Row at home. We continue on bringing you the Radio Row experience from the confines of our own studios. Very, very excited for our next guest. He's a well-renowned author and reporter. Jeff Benedict is his name. He wrote the book on the Patriots called The Dynasty that came out in the back half of 2020. Jeff, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I've heard great things about this book. I have the copy. It just got here, so I'm going to read it myself. But uh, the Patriots dynasty has been written on a lot. Ian O'Connor did a book. Michael Holly did a book. Why did you want to jump in and, and bring us a story that has been reported on a lot? Well, um, you know, Ian wrote, uh, actually didn't write about the dynasty. Ian wrote a, a great biography about Bill Belichick. And Michael Holly, who's actually a good friend of mine, um, has written three books about the Patriots yeah. over the years. Um, <clears throat> but those focus on different 
periods in the in the dynasty. What I wanted to do was tell uh, basically basically I I am a biographer, and in this case I wanted to write a biography instead of about a a, a person, which is what we normally do. Yeah. This is a biography about a franchise, an organization from beginning to end. And so uh, it's it's different than what Michael set out to do. I, I thoroughly enjoyed each of Michael's books and Ian's book about Coach Belichick. But the dynasty is really a story about how is this thing built and then how is it sustained for so much longer than any of its predecessors? We've had a few other dynasties in the NFL, the Packers in the 60s, the Steelers in the 70s, the 49ers in the uh, 80s and into the very early 90s. But none of those dynasties had the staying power of the Patriots. And so I, I really set out to just understand how that happened, why it happened, and then and basically tell that story from inside the organization as opposed to as an outsider. You know, a lot of the great feedback I've read about your book does focus on the the early portions, even pre-Brady and pre-Belichick. So take me back to what it was like, you know, finding out the details on Robert Kraft, buying the team and even being able to keep it in New England. Well, my answer to that would actually also, you know, pivot from your first question about hmm. why do the book that I did. If you think about the prior books that have been written about uh, portions of the Patriots history, none of them have focused on the Kraft family at all. Um, there have been multiple books done about Belichick and Brady, um, good ones, in fact, but no one's really looked at the ownership part of this. And I, I saw this as real fertile ground that hadn't been plowed by other journalists. And so foundationally, I think in order to understand what happened post-2000, when Brady and Belichick finally arrive in Foxborough, you really have to go back and look at all the groundwork that was laid before they got there, starting with this 15-year odyssey that Robert Kraft went on just to get the team. That alone is, is the stuff of Hollywood movies. I mean, it's the all the political machinations, the money, the the competing with other millionaires and billionaires who were trying to get their hooks into this team, that whole process. And then there's the great, uh, the great odyssey that Kraft goes on with Bill Parcells, um, yeah. which is this, it's the predicate to, to Belichick really, but it's such great stuff because there was um, great drama in that relationship between Kraft and Parcells without which we wouldn't have the, the great story that we have today. So while it was surely unpleasant for both men while they were going through it in the, in the nineties, um, I think it's without that uh, toxicity and drama, you wouldn't have the greatness that came out of it. And I think that Parcells also plays a key role in the arrival of Belichick. I mean, let's face it, after all, it was Parcells, who persuaded Kraft to fly out to Indianapolis in 1996 to try to convince Belichick not to go to Miami as Jimmy Johnson's defensive coordinator and instead to come to New England as an assistant coach after he'd been fired in Cleveland. That single move was monumental in terms of the history and future of the organization. Jeff Benedict, author of The Dynasty about the Patriots here on your home for Patriots football, WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You know, and I'm a Patriots fan by work, right? I didn't grow up a Patriots fan. So learning this is kind of new to me also. 
But th the famous quote from Parcells is that they want you to cook the meal, they might as well let you buy the groceries. So it seems like Parcells wanted control that he wasn't being given. Well, Belichick seems to have a whole lot of control. So does Robert Kraft deserve a lot of credit for his own personal growth in ceding some of that control as he got older? You know, I, that that obviously is the most famous quote attributed to Parcells in his tenure in New England. I will tell you that there are much better quotes hmm. in the book from Parcells than that one. Okay. I mean, he is a quote machine. And uh, some of the behind the scenes, they're not even conversations. They're fights hmm. uh, that he has with the crafts and with others in the organization. Um, I think really shed a lot of light on on that relationship but yes uh i do think that you 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 honed in on something that's really important is that there was a a tug of war between Kraft and parcells over control partly because when Kraft arrived it's it's important to remember historically where the nfl was in 1994. Mm -hmm. there were two brand new things brand new one was free agency and the other was a salary cap Neither of those existed hmm. in the world that Bill Parcells grew up in, in the NFL. But when, when Kraft buys the team, one of the reasons he was attracted to buying when he did was because he knew those two things were coming. And he also knew that they provided great business opportunities for him to, to do things in New England with this team. And I think what's interesting is you see a clash in cultures. Parcells is the old guard of the NFL. Kraft represents the new guard. Um, at the time, he was an unproven owner. Parcells was a proven coach. And that's this, this great colossal collision that's happening in Foxborough. And it was over control. And I think one of the things that comes out of that is by the time uh, Kraft hires Belichick, he was comfortable giving Belichick uh, much more latitude and discretion to run the football side of the operation than he was in giving it to, to um, Parcells. And one of the reasons is because Belichick had demonstrated a mastery of the salary cap and a mastery of free agency. And he, you know, he proved that out in his 20 years as head coach. You know, one of the things I'm excited to read about, I think it was Peter King who referenced this angle of the book, is uh, just how dire it got for Drew Bledsoe there for a bit, um, health-wise. So we know he gets hurt hurt enough to miss most of the season, but he comes back and plays. And because he had a fruitful career after New England, I think we all just assumed it was a season-long injury, and that was kind of it. But your book's going to tell us the story of it got very dire there for Bledsoe while he was in the hospital. Yeah, I chose to open the book in the emergency room with a surgeon leaning over Drew wow. and making an incision in his chest um, uh, hours after the hit from Mo Lewis. Uh, the reason I opened there was a couple of things, but one of which is that medically, I think no, no one really had an has had an appreciation for just how close Bledsoe came to losing his life that night wow. uh, in Foxborough. I was fortunate enough to interview the surgeon who operated on Drew that night. Hmm. Uh, he was a great interview. He's never done an interview before about that. And the only reason he agreed to interview with me was because uh, Drew Bledsoe gave him authorization to do so. Uh, so he didn't violate any, any, uh, any laws by talking to me. He had the permission from Drew. But the other reason I opened there was because there's something very dramatic that happens that night 
in the hospital at Mass General after the, the surgeon was successful in stopping the internal bleeding that was causing Drew's lungs to fill up with blood is that when he finally came to in the emergency room, which was somewhere around midnight that night, mm. this was a late afternoon game against yep. the Jets, first game after 9-11. And um, <clears throat> when Bledsoe came to, uh, as you would expect, his wife, Mora, was seated to his right in the hospital. And in fact, doing what you would expect uh, her to do. She was holding his hand. She was anxious. She was waiting for him to wake up. Um, that's the expected part. What was unexpected was that when Drew looked up to his left, um, imagine now he's, he's lying on a hospital bed. So he's looking up to his left and there were three people standing over the bed on the other side. And that was in this order, uh, owner, Robert Kraft, coach Belichick and Tommy. Hmm. And uh, Drew did not expect those three people to be in the hospital when he woke up. And he's all groggy. You know, he's he's been under the influence of medication in the in the ER and all that. So you can you can sort of picture if you've ever been, you know, in a hospital in a procedure when you first come to you're not all with it anyways. And seeing those three faces there um, was very dramatic. And it's important because you think about that moment in time at that point. Robert Kraft was an owner that had never won anything. Bill Belichick had a career losing record. Yeah. You know, his record in Cleveland was bad and his record in New England for the first season was 5 and 11. Yeah. And uh and now he starts out the new season with losses. And then you got Brady who's never started an NFL game standing there. No one would imagine in that moment that what Drew was looking up at was the nucleus of the greatest dynasty in the history of the NFL. And that's why I chose to open in the hospital, because to me, that moment is the moment in terms of giving birth to what we saw happen in the last 20 years in New England. That's the moment. I'll get you out of here on this. We're pressed for time. I've heard Bledsoe do countless interviews over the years. He seems to be um, great friends with Brady and have a great respect for the Patriots. How long do you think it took him to get there mentally? Because I could understand, you know, there being some resentment at being pushed aside for a guy who hadn't accomplished much at that point. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question. And I think the way I would answer it, let me just say two things really quickly. First off, uh, one of the things I enjoyed most about writing this book is the interaction with all these guys, uh, all these people. And, and it's not just the guys. Like, I interviewed wives when I could. Like, mm -hmm. I, I interviewed Drew's wife, Maura, multiple times. Um, there's an, the reason there's an intimacy to a lot of the scenes in this book was because I, I did a lot of interviews in, in these guys' homes and in, in places where they felt comfortable getting into some of the more intimate moments in this story. This is a family story when you get right down to it. And, uh, and I think Drew is an uncommon individual, as is his wife, Maura. Uh, wonderful people. I mean, Robert Kraft's been blessed to have personnel come through New England who are just really high caliber human beings. Yeah. A lot of the players who have funneled through on these rosters are the kind of people you'd want to live next door to. <laughs> and, and that's a great thing to be able to say. And so with respect to your question about Drew, let's face it, most we're all human. Most people probably would never have gotten where Drew got with regard to Tom and the organization. Um, 
But Drew, uh, I think, is the ultimate example of someone who put team first. And uh, he, he, gets, he doesn't get enough credit for the way he acted in 2001 as a guy who was standing on the sideline ho holding a clipboard. I mean, think about it. The highest paid player in the NFL that year was holding a clipboard. Wow. There just aren't many guys in the NFL that could get their ego properly adjusted to do what Drew did. And I think it just speaks a lot about his character and his wife's character, by the way, uh, for how he and, and interacted and treated Brady. Um, and it's, it, it also speaks to Kraft and the way he has maintained relations over the years with all of these players, uh, many of whom have left the organization initially unhappy. Lawyer Malloy, Ty yeah. Law, Adam Vinatieri. I mean, you can just go down the line. Many of the Patriot greats left, you know, not in the best way. But if you look at those rosters, at, at those old rosters with all those great players, basically to a man, those guys are all on great terms with the Kraft family today. That just says a lot about Robert Kraft and how he how he treats the personnel that work for him. Jeff Benedict, the book is The Dynasty. He's the author. It's gotten great reviews from all sectors. Our guy, Bob Sosi, Pat's broadcaster, loved it and uh, talked it up during our talks with him weekly during the season. Jeff, I can't wait to get my uh, my fingers on it. It's on my desk right now. I'm going to go read it here at some point over this weekend, I think. So, Jeff, I appreciate your time. Best of luck, continued success, and we look forward to your next work. All right. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the uh, Super Bowl this weekend. I will. You as well. Jeff Benedict with us on the Brady Farkas show. Um, I mean, that's going to be a great book. I, I can't wait. You know, I've interviewed a lot of authors. And, you know, there's a lot of times where authors will just reach out and say, hey, you want to have me on? And they have nothing to do with what you care about. And I reached out to Jeff. Um, and not all, you know, authors aren't always that interesting. But Jeff was interesting. The book seems great. I've got it on my desk. I'm looking at it right now. I can't wait to read it. And I don't even like reading that much. Sorry to everybody. But, like, I'm going to read this book. Absolutely no doubt about that. A um, couple of texts coming in, a couple of people saying more good stuff about the Brian Phelps interview, the Milton High School grad who talked to us about the infamous 5-2 to two game back in 2005. We get, uh, Let's see. Um, Nick in Heinsberg who says, hey, enjoyed the Jeff Benedict book. I read it myself, so that's good. I'm glad to hear you have uh, read that and enjoy it. Remember, you can always get in on the text line, 802-585-3026. And as of today, as of today, it's brought to you by your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and in Morrisville. So the Napa text line is now always open. we got a couple minutes left here. We'll break a little earlier again today, guys, because we didn't take as many breaks as we're supposed to. Full show podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the website. I also did another interview, Denard Walker, and this one didn't air on the show. I just put it on the podcast channel earlier today. Denard Walker, who played in the NFL for a number of years, he played with the Vikings, the Broncos, the Titans, and the uh, and the Vikings. He played in the Super Bowl, the uh, one where the Rams beat the Titans, and Mike Jones, you know, stops Kevin Dyson at the one yard line. He played in that game for Tennessee on the losing side. He joined me as well, again, just on the podcast channel. He was playing for Denver back in 2001, Tom Brady's first year starting. Second year overall, but first year starting. He had a pick six against Tom Brady in his first year starting. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about playing Brady in his first 
games ever as a starter and what he saw and getting a pick six against him. So, uh, you know, I encourage you to go find that interview as well. Uh, hard to believe Super Bowl is upon us. No one knew we were going to get here. And 256 games down in the regular season, more in the playoffs, and here we are on just the eaves of Super Bowl 55. 6.30 is the kickoff on Sunday. Pretty cool. There's some Vermonters down there as well We're doing some security stuff work, and we'll hear, hear from, uh, from them next week. I can't wait to talk to them also. So I think it was like 75. Uh, Robert Kraft sending some Vermonters down there along with some other New England personnel and people to go down to the Super Bowl. So I can't wait for it. Um, a lot of other news we'll get to on Monday. We'll have the Super Bowl, obviously. Remember, next week we're having our show cut off by um, a little bit two days next week. we got NASCAR going on on Tuesday and Thursday as we get ready for Daytona. Those are the only two weekday races Daytona has. Hopefully we'll have some high school basketball that starts maybe next week. The governor has given the okay to high school basketball to start on Friday the 12th. And uh, once the schedule gets finalized, we'll have an opportunity to bring you high school basketball all season long, however long the season is, right here on DEV. So maybe even as early as next Friday, be on the lookout for that. But, uh, guys, let's step aside here and uh, let's call it a day. Remember, 37-24 Chiefs, that is my prediction, 37 37- 24 Chiefs. I think Brady overall plays fine. I think he will have a turnover in the game, though, and I think uh, the, you know, again, the Bucks just won't be able to overcome turnovers like Kansas City can. I think Kansas City has too much explosiveness, too much overall speed, and Mahomes is too good, and it's really what it comes down to. I would not be shocked if Tampa won, but the, the Chiefs have too much speed and too much skill, and they are ready to to go. So 37-24 Chiefs win. I think it'll be a high scoring game. Weather might be a little iffy and knock that down, but uh, I'm going over on the posted total. So Dinner Jazz is coming up next with John Wilson. ESPN Radio at 9 o'clock and then the WCAX Evening News will be on at 11. Thanks to all the text engagement all week long. Thanks to our staff, Radio Row at Home, a, uh, a big time effort. You guys did great at it. A huge success in my mind. A lot of cool names, and we just keep going from here. So subscribe to the podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, all thanks to Sticks and Stuff. We will see you on Monday. We'll break down the Super Bowl, and uh, we'll be ready here to head in to the offseason. That's all coming up Monday right here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com.